0: I want to welcome everybody back to our fourth, fourth lesson, fourth lesson. Okay, let's bow our heads and we'll pray. Father God, we come to you in Jesus name and Lord, we just thank you and praise you for tonight. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together and Lord, I thank you for a group of women that does not neglect The gathering together, which you have commanded us to do. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you that we live in a country where we can safely come together without fear, that we can carry our Bibles out in the open. Lord, this is a privilege that many in the world do not have. So, Lord, why, while we have this privilege, God, may we take full advantage of it. May we learn daily more and more of your word and may your word change us, Lord, mold us and make us into your likeness. That is our prayer. And Father God, particularly tonight in a section of this letter that we're going to be getting into, Lord, that some might not even be familiar with, God, I pray for open eyes to see open ears to hear, receptive hearts, Father God. But I also thank you for women who are diligent to study for themselves as well. I thank you for that, Lord. May everything tonight in this class, may everything tonight in the men's class bring you glory. May every word we speak honor and glorify you. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. Okay. She here. Oh, <laughs> just in time. Sneaking in right in time. Okay. So tonight, um, Kim just got here. She is going to read for us tonight the letter. So um, while she's getting ready, since she just walked in, Kim, are you still good? Okay. Then we'll have a quick little review and then we'll read the letter again and move on into some new material. So, if you look in your binders or up on the screen, oops, I'm not supposed to be doing that way. Um, Here's the outline, again, of Jude. And we know we started, as Jude started his letter, with the assurance of the believer. This is a letter from a true believer to true believers about false believers. So it is a very serious letter. His tone is serious. His tone is urgent. Um, We started with this assurance though, and Jude gives us a wonderful introduction where he says this letter is to the called, to the beloved of God and to those who are kept for Jesus Christ. Um, just incredible when we think that's who we are. If if you ever need a little a little boost, go look up those three words, dig into those three words. It's fabulous. After this, we saw that Jude gives us our first few clues of what apostasy is. And he describes apostates. He will do this over and over throughout the letter. We'll see that. But in the beginning, he gives us something really critical to know about this area. And if you remember, it's these people creep into the church. They sneak in unnoticed. That's their plan. That's their plan. An apostate is a deceiver, but there are also people within the church who aren't deceivers, but they are being deceived, which is why apostasy is so dangerous and why apostates face such a harsh judgment. So last week, we began really in the body of the letter, and we see that Jude is giving us three examples of apostate groups in history. And last week, we went through the Israelites in the wilderness wanderings. So this first group that Jude is giving us is a group of Jews. Tonight, we are going to be talking about angels, and then next week, we're going to be talking about Gentiles. Gentiles. So all three are covered in this letter in historical events that we have elsewhere in the Bible. So that's where we're heading tonight. So before we get into the new, um, I'm going to have Kim come read the letter. I do have someone else who's volunteered to read, but so far I only have one more. So if you'd like to read, please let me know. So follow along either in your notebooks Or in the Bible, we'll read through the whole letter because that's how letters are supposed to be read.
1: Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt. But later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their home. These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, these dreamers pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and slander celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand, and what things they do understand by instinct... Like unreasoning animals, these are the very things that destroy them. Woe to them, they have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These men are are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, Blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars, for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts. They have done in in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh words, ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These men are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers, who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. 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 Thank you, Kim.
0: What the old one, yeah. That was good. I heard some really good things in there. I don't have the old NIV, so that's why I don't typically use mine, but that was good. Um, hopefully, as we read this letter every single week, hopefully as you're reading this, some on your own, different things will start popping out to you, as you get more familiar with it, once we've gone through some material and really dug into it, something else is probably going to pop up in your mind and really catch your attention. I, I will tell you the phrase that has gotten me week after week lately is snatch them out of the fire. I'm like, oh, Lord, let us be women who snatch other people out of the fire. What an incredible picture that is. And there is a lot of people who need to be snatched. Um, you asked last week about Demas and I didn't want to answer because I, I needed to make sure his end was what I was thinking his end was. And as soon as I heard the word <laughs> Demas, the name, I can hear your voice saying Demas from Colossians. But if you know about Demas and you asked, would he fall into this group? Is he an apostate? Um, I would say, From what we have in the word he is. Because he started early in Paul's ministry. And Paul in Colossians is saying, my fellow worker in Christ. Now, if you go to, and these are in your front pockets. You have your um, church history timelines. And if you look here. The last letter, so Paul wrote Colossians sometime between 60 and 62 AD, and he's being called a fellow worker. Demas is mentioned again in the letter of 2 Timothy, and this letter was written right before Paul's martyrdom. So his last letter possibly, um, depending on, well, that doesn't matter. Um, if you look at this verse in second Timothy, I wrote it down and he says this, Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So as far as we know, here is a person who was at least in words and actions proclaiming to be a person of the truth, but then he deserted it. He deserted it. He left it. So you can say, and this is what we've talked about. So, was he a believer? Was he not a believer? I know absolutely what I believe. Um, This is something you really need to settle for yourselves. But I believe he wasn't a true believer. I believe he probably um, like in the parable of the soils and we'll be going through this one week um, when the seed falls on certain soil and they immediately take it. But then listen to what happened to him. Oh, the temptations of the world and riches come in and they leave. They leave. We'll be going through that parable one day. But if people leave, everybody turn in your Bibles to 1 John 2. 1 John 2, 19. And I think this explains what we see in Demas And what we see in a lot of people who could spend a long time in church, but then all of a sudden they're gone and their lives are very different. Does anybody know anybody like that? Went to church with them for years and now they will have nothing to do with it. This is what John says. They went out from us but they were not of us for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Hard to misunderstand that. They left because they weren't really in in the first place now does that mean they can't get in of, of course they can they they weren't saved anyway so of course they can be saved they can be snatched out of the fire they can be brought back. We, we have the last words of Paul. We don't have the last of Demas's life. So who knows? Hopefully he, hopefully he got it. Hopefully at some point when he went to Thessalonica, well, there was a church in Thessalonica. It was a thriving city, but there was a church there. Maybe he got it. Maybe he turned. Maybe he bowed his knee. That we don't know. What What we need to be careful of here is we we will never know because we don't know the heart. There is no one outside the possibility of salvation. No one. No one. And on the flip side of that coin. If someone does die as an apostate, they have a very harsh judgment because they knew the truth. They were told the truth. They had experienced the truth. Some of them had even professed the truth, but then they rebelled they turned from it. They left it. That's what apostasy is. Jude, in this letter, he, he like ramps it up even more because these apostates he's talking about aren't the ones that are professing to be something and then they forsake it and leave the church. These are people proclaiming to be people of the truth and staying in the church as false teachers. And that's why they're so dangerous. There's nothing more dangerous than a deception that's really close to the truth. Really blatant deceptions, we can see, we can recognize them. You ladies, of course, we know the world is going to lie to us. They don't believe the truth. So that's, that's easy for us to be like, okay, you know, I don't believe that. I know that's not coming from the right place. It's much harder to discern when someone is claiming to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and mingling with some truth or I should say really speaking lies, but mingling it with truth, that becomes much more dangerous, much more deceptive. So that, that's where I think Demas falls in this story of what apostasy is. But again, we'll be, we'll be looking at him again later um, when we get into the parable of the soils Because that is a really interesting parable and it shows us reasons why people apostatize. Why do they leave the truth? Some pretty clear examples there. So hopefully that answered your question. Moving on to new material now. So looking at our outline, we see we are in verses 5 through seven five through seven yeah can we would you mind to write down questions only because we're on tape we'll get through the material and then I will turn it off and we will um we will ask questions and hopefully I believe this one's going to be a little shorter so we should have some time for some questions and discussion at the end okay oh you are so good Elizabeth you are so good. Okay, so um, verse five through seven, let me just read these again because this is the chunk of these three historical examples. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example By undergoing punishment of eternal fire. So three examples. Last week we looked at the first of the three. Um, We know that Jude has picked three examples that his first century audience would have been aware of. And we realize this because... Jude gives us no details really on any of these stories. He's just saying, okay, remember this one, remember this one, remember this one. Just, just how we would talk. You know, remember last week at, when we got together? Well, you don't have to give me details because we remember it. Um, so this tells us these were well-known stories to these people he was writing to. Now we do see a little bit of warning in the way he words this. He says, you once fully knew. So we see they might, maybe they were starting to lose it, starting to lose maybe the story themselves, maybe what these stories represented or what they meant. So he's giving them a warning there. Um, I would most definitely say by the 21st century, much of the church has forgotten these, particularly the one we're talking about tonight. But these are his three examples for our learning that he gives us. Israelites in the wilderness, the angels who sinned, and Sodom and Gomorrah. So just by a show of hands, are these three familiar to you? You're all pretty familiar with this, okay? I would say this classroom is probably different than most because, though, though I think almost any believer who goes to a Bible teaching church would have some um, some idea of the wilderness wanderings in Sodom and Gomorrah. Most are clueless in this middle story that is being referenced. You all are not, because we've been doing this for two years. And what's crazy is this weird story comes up in a lot of different places and is actually quite pertinent, though many people choose to just ignore it and say, don't worry about that one. But I will say, if you had your hand raised, you're, you're probably a little different than um, the majority of what we're seeing in the 21st century church. So, as we get into this, we are going to be remembering here the less familiar, I would say, of these three. What is so fascinating and what really caught my attention the first time I ever read Jude, and this is why I really began studying Jude And this was years ago. I was just reading it just, you know, as I was reading through the Bible. But when I read this, I want to remind you, although once you you once fully knew. And then it gives the, um, hello, the exit from Egypt. And then we have Sodom and Gomorrah. And then right in the middle of it, I'm like, what is this? what is this talking about? And the idea that it was sandwiched between these two that I was, of course, familiar with, it made me realize, well, I should know what this is talking about. And I didn't, I didn't know what this was in reference to. And it really sent me searching through the word to find some truth on this. Because ladies, all scripture, is for our learning. This isn't in here just as an accident. It's, in, it's not in here for us to be told, don't worry about that one. It's in here for our learning. So tonight, we're gonna dig into it and see what it has to teach us. So, verse um, six, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains, under gloomy darkness, until the judgment of the great day. So tonight we're going to look at Jude's words, and then we're going to look at Peter's words, because Peter talks about the exact same thing. So these two New Testament passages, and then we're going to go dig it out of the Old Testament and see where that event is and what we can learn from it. So let's go kind of word by word through Jude first, So we see the word angels here. We know in Greek that is angelos. This is a host of heaven, a messenger, an envoy, one who is sent. Now, we do know, and anyone who did the revelation class, we understand that word angelos can be in reference to a person. There are places in the word where it is. I I believe that is true in those seven letters to the seven churches. We know even um, John the Baptist was called a messenger. And if you look that in the Greek, it's angelos. So we know it can be in reference to a person. I believe the context here is going to show us the other definition that it is a spiritual being in this case. So it says, the angels that did not stay. Other versions say they did not keep. In Greek, this is me terero, and it is the negative form of what we learned on that first night about what keeping means. This word keep is all throughout Jude. It is a very powerful word. But here it's saying these angels didn't keep. They did not attend to their position. They did not guard themselves. They did not stay in the lane of what they were supposed to do. They made a direct move out of their appropriate position place. This is in the arrowist verb form, and this refers to an action in which the speaker or writer presents an action as complete. It means they left it and that was it. That's the end. They left. They did not come back. So what did they not keep? They didn't keep their own position of authority. Now, if we look at this phrase in Greek, it is RK, and it means domain, origin, or beginning. Now, keep kind of these terms in mind. It's all going to come together here in a second. So we have angels who did not keep their position of authority. They left it, abandoned, Deserted it, they left their proper dwelling. And this is two different words, proper and dwelling. Idios okaterian. It means they left their proper place, their house in which they were given to dwell. This specific place that they were given to hold. So when we think about angels and their proper dwelling, if we look throughout scripture, we can see obviously angels are created beings and at their creation, they would have been given their purpose at creation. We see Different purposes of angels all throughout the Word, all throughout Scripture. We know in Isaiah, they were created to worship. In Revelation, they were created to serve God. In Daniel, we see sometimes they deliver messages from God, they act as ministering spirits to those who inherit salvation. That's us. They are to act as ministering spirits. They are to protect God's people. That's found in Daniel. And we even see in Daniel where they are conducting spiritual warfare. I would say there's probably a lot of things going on around us at all times of which we are totally unaware. But angels are busy doing their proper thing that they were created to do. Yet here we see some that left that to do something else. Now, this word Oketarian, this is very fascinating. It's only used two times in Scripture. We know that's important. So right here we see the word Oketarian used, and it's also used... And 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 2, not only Oketarian, but several other um, words from that that root. So this is what 2 Corinthians says. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in heaven for in this tent we groan longing to put on our heavenly dwelling our okatarian so this is our earthly body in this earthly body we we groan we long for something else that something else is coming And that, yeah, that isn't this body. That is a glorified body. So what this is saying, what we long for, they deserted. They left. That is serious. So put another way. We see these angels who were created by God for certain tasks and certain assignments, left those positions, abandoned it to do something else. So why would they do this? We're going to see they saw something they wanted more than what God had for them. And this we know really is the essence of all sin. We see something we want more than what God has for us. So next in Jude, we see that he tells us of their punishment. He, in this case, God has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So a very severe judgment. If we look at all these words, again, you all hear kept, again, terero, guarded, attended to carefully, taking care of. But in this case, who's keeping them there? God himself keeping them in eternal chains. This means everlasting without end shackles of a prisoner. gloomy darkness, the zophos, blackness, shrouded in a cloud or a mist, sounds pretty horrific, until, that's our preposition there, how how, how long are they here? Well, until the judgment, kresis. Now, judgment is another word where, again, we want to be careful with it because judgment isn't always um, something negative or something bad. And we've talked about this before. Oftentimes that word judgment simply means you're making a decision. Well, I can do this. I can do this. I'm going to judge between these two things and I'm going to do this. Um, We can get a judgment from a judge that is wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Can be life-changing when a judge hands down a judgment. Like in our case, when we were given Michael, I mean, a judgment can be a wonderful thing. We also know that's not always the case. There's nothing inherently wrong or inherently negative about that word. But in this case, the word judgment is Croesus. And in context, this is reference to a sentence of condemnation, a damnatory judgment. So the judgment that comes at the great day. And though, again, these words are also general terms elsewhere, when we see them in this context and when we put them together, we know this is the day of the Lord, the great day, the day of the Lord when he himself returns to judge. So this is what that is talking about. Um, let's look at Peter's and then we're going to go back to what this great day is because Peter mentions it as well. Why don't you turn in your Bibles here to 2 Peter 2, 4. And I know you have all of this in your notes and I try to make your notes very thorough so you can go back to them and go through them again. But I cannot suggest that. Um, more for you to turn your Bibles into your own study Bibles. You really need to know where these passages are in the Word. When you find a passage that connects to another passage, you need to make your own notes in it. You need to write it down. So when you're going back later, whenever you're in Jude in 5 through 7, well, you should have Second Peter 2, 4 written in your notes so that you can go to it. You should have... Genesis 6, written in your notes right there, so you can go to it. So your Bible becomes just a reference to other places in the Word because we know the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. So particularly when we get to a passage like this that a lot of people are unfamiliar with, they don't understand We need to find other places in the word where it's being talked about. So in 2 Peter 2, 4, he says this. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to keep until the judgment. So here... Peter's talking about the same thing, but he can give us a little more clarity on this. We know now that what, what they did by not keeping their assignment, what is Peter calling it? Sin. A sin. A sin. This place of everlasting chains. Where? Where? Hell. Hell. So this passage gives us a little more clarity there um in here and we'll deal with this word in a minute but this word hell is in Greek tartarus it means the dark abode of woe and the only place that word for hell is used in the entire bible is right here in peter every other mention to hell it is something else so we'll we'll talk about that But before, if you'll look through your connection and I'm not going to read this entire thing, you can do this on your own. But again, ladies, take advantage of the connections because it will help build your understanding of the Bible as a whole because it's all connected. So when we're talking about the judgment of this great day, we went over that judgment of the great day in the Revelation class. And this is the great white throne judgment that comes really at the end of human history before the new heavens and the new earth. It is after the tribulation. It is even after the millennial reign. But after that, we know there is a great white throne judgment where all unrighteous from any time in history stand before the Lord to be judged. So when it says the judgment of the great day, that's what it means. And don't let that word day confuse you uh, because the day of the Lord, as again, we saw in Revelation, it's long. (laughs) It's this entire period of time. But this author and in the first century, they use that word just like we do when we can say, well, um, that was the day of Michael Jordan or whatever, meaning, you know, that was his time. You know, he was the best of the best for that time. That doesn't mean it was one, one day, one game. His day was a period of time. So that's what this is in reference to. But it's in dealing with the great white throne judgment. And you can read about that in Revelation 20 this week. So, Let's hit this word that Peter uses because this is very important to understand. And again, I know for some of you, this is going to be review because we've talked about this before. But if there is any topic that nobody likes talking about, it's hell. Um, And because of that, It doesn't get talked about much. Um, we, We are told, we are actually told, don't talk about it. You can scare people. You can offend people. All sorts of things. And if there's anything we need understanding of, it is this. Because this is the future of anyone who does not know the Lord. We have got to get this in us we have got to get the gravity of this now this word we know and we've talked about this before as well the bible is written in three languages that's it the old testament hebrew the new testament is greek there's several chapters in the old testament in daniel that are written in aramaic but that's it though those three So if we really want understanding of what the Lord is telling us, it is to our great benefit to go to the original languages and look at them. I am in no way any sort of Hebrew or Greek scholar at all. I wish I was, but what I do have is the Blue Letter Bible where I can look up any word at any time and find the Greek or the Hebrew. you all, that's all I do. This is things you can do. Um, so do it. <laughs> it will give you great understanding. Both Hebrew and Greek are incredibly precise languages. So it doesn't offer as much place for confusion as sometimes we can have in English. So in English, There's actually, or I would say in Scripture, there are five different words associated with our English word, hell. And they are Sheol in the Old Testament, Hades in the New Testament, bottomless pit, Tartarus, and Gehenna. So let's talk about each of these briefly so that you know um, what we're dealing with here in Peter's. So Sheol and Hades, this is really probably the closest thing that we use for our word hell. Again, um, Sheol is Hebrew used 35 times or 53 times, I'm sorry. Um, Sheol is 32 times in the Old Testament and then Hades is 21 in the New Testament. This is the place of the dead, the place of disembodied spirits, place of departed souls, but it is temporary. It is a temporary place. We sometimes don't get that. Bottomless pit. This is the abuso or the. Abyssos. we see that, we saw that word multiple times in Revelation. It is a deep gulf or chasm. It is the abode of demons. In Revelation, we saw this is where the demon locusts emerge from, the abuso. This is where the beast in Revelation emerges from, the abuso. This is where Satan is chained and bound for a thousand years during the millennial reign. He's put in the abuso. So that's that word, the bottomless pit. Next, the one we just saw in Peter is Tartarus. And this is the dark abode of woe. Even that definition. Oh, my gosh. Horrific. But when we look at Revelation, and if everybody wants to turn here really quickly, go to Revelation 20. And this is in reference to the great white throne judgment that you can read about this week. But this is after that final judgment This is what it says in verse 14. Then death and what's that word? Hades Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. So this thing that we think of as hell is actually put somewhere else into the lake of fire. And this is our last word associated with hell, and this word is Gehenna. And this is the permanent place of judgment of the unrighteous. This is the lake of fire. So in order to understand this, historically, this is the city of Jerusalem To the south of the city was a valley of Hinnon, and this is where trash was burned. This is where dead animals would go to be burned. Um, It was a place of everlasting fire. The fires were always going in this valley and this is how it got associated and this is why This term is used to talk about the final resting place of judgment for the unrighteous. We know this was also, again, we've talked about this. This was also a place where sacrifices were made. Sometimes people would be forced to walk into these fires as a sacrifice. Um, But this was this place, horrific, horrific. And this is why this is the term that was used for the lake of fire. But what you need to see, look up, everybody take, um, let's do Luke 12, 5, but they're all here for you. What I want you to see in this word is when you go to the scripture, Luke 12, 5, says this, but I will warn you whom to fear, fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into what? Hell. Here it's hell. It's our English word, hell. If you look that up in Greek, it would be Gehenna. It, it is saying, fear the one who can put people into hell. The eternal lake of fire. All the, ones in red here are all, all the ones in red are Gehenna. When you open up your Bibles, it will say the word hell. But if you look it up in Greek, it says Gehenna. So this is what we need to understand about how this works. It, it's different. Um, these words are used differently. And for some reason, Peter in, in his passage here, the only time Ever the Greek word Tartarus is used. But plenty of things you can dig into there. And somebody explained it to me this way, and I thought it was incredible because obviously when people hear, well, Hades isn't permanent and David himself, if you remember this after David's, um, Son died. He said, oh, I will see you again in Sheol. Do you remember that? Um, So it was a holding place. (laughs) It was a holding place. Now, obviously, we can see where this teaching went wrong. This idea went wrong. We have um, churches like the Catholic Church that believe in something called purgatory, which is this Holding place. It's not the permanent place, but where it's wrong is they believe you can either praise somebody out or pay somebody out. Both are wrong. At the time of death, decision is made. There is no going back. A person is in hell or a person is in the presence of the Lord. Those are the only two choices. Now, In this idea of hell before the lake of fire, again, it was explained to me like this. Think of it as jail. Someone is in jail for a crime. We know jail is a bad place, obviously. But they are in jail until they come before the judge. And then they are given their final punishment, which could be prison. So that do, does that help make it clearer here? And in this lake of fire is, of course, the permanent place. And we see that Hades itself, hell itself, is put into this lake of fire. So, Jude, uh, first night we said... Jude is a short but sweeping book. In 25 verses, he gets into more topics than we could ever spend in this class, you all. The doctrine of hell being one of them. But this is what scripture should do in us. We we need to be digging in and digging out all the things we can from each book, each passage, because there's more in it than what we just read over lightly. So, let's continue. Now, going back to these two passages, now that we've gone through each of them, both Jude and Peter, there's actually three routes that are typically taken when dealing with this these passages. The first is what I've already said. It's oftentimes just ignored. Have you ever gotten a study Bible and you're so excited and you're reading through it and the one verse you want commentary on, there's nothing there? <laughs> you're like, oh, that's the one I needed. Um, often, this is just an ignored passage. Just skip, skipped right over and... Um, I was personally told by someone one day when I was really trying to figure this out, don't worry about it. We don't have enough in the Bible to figure it out. Now, there are some things in the Bible that we, we don't have enough to totally get our minds around. Absolutely, I, I absolutely get that. I just don't think this is one of those times. I think the Bible does give us places, Peter and Genesis. But that's one route just to ignore it. The second in dealing with this passage is that these are angels that originally fell with Lucifer. And we know there was a fall in the beginning because when we first meet Satan early in Genesis, He's already fallen. So he fell and we know he took a third of the host of heaven with him. So could this reference be to those angels? Well, I think the main issue with that is that these angels we see are chained forever. And Satan himself, who was the instigator of this, that initial rebellion isn't chained. So why would some have been chosen from that and Lucifer himself not? Or why wouldn't they all be in this position? If this was warranting that, then why aren't they all there? This is, I believe, The third way that this passage can be looked at, this is a subset of the angels who fell that did something so, so outrageous that they have been put in chains. So that, again, ladies, dig in for yourself. You all need to be studying to show yourself approved. Um. But look into this. I am going to present this passage, particularly in Genesis, from that standpoint. You don't have to agree with me on that, but this is how I'm going to teach it because I believe it's how Jude is showing it. And I believe it's how um, Peter is referencing this as well. So let's look at this because we know, again, Way back at the beginning of this particular verse, he is talking about stories that his audience would have been familiar with. They would have been familiar with these three events because they're from the Old Testament. So where can we find this event in the Old Testament? And we're going to learn, does anybody know? Probably a lot of you in here know. call it out, Uh Genesis 6. So everybody flip to Genesis 6. And I did put a name in your notes because what I will tell you is when I really began looking into this, just an incredible resource that I found on this subject is Chuck Missler, if you're familiar with him, if you've ever done any of his, his studies He does expositional studies of every single book of the Bible, amazing content that he covers, but he really um, has a lot of teaching and information on this Genesis 6 account if you want to go further. So the second example, again, one of the stranger, but let's just read it and then we're going to dig into this like we did Jude and Peter. So Genesis 6, 1 through 4, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Very strange stuff. Um, But... We can't be scared to talk about and look into the strange stuff of the Bible because it's in here for a reason. So, here we go. Man began to multiply on the face of the earth. Now, remember, Genesis 6 is pre flood. We know before the flood, men had very long lifespans. So, the population of the earth was growing very, very quickly. Now we'll see a few verses down, it says, His day shall be 120 years. We know that whatever was happening here was one of the reasons why man's life span was shortened. Now, to us, 120 years is still a pretty long time. But back then, when they were living six, seven, eight hundred years, this would, I'm sure, seem like nothing. So The sons of God, this is very, very important. This word, sons of God, in Hebrew is benah Elohim. And this is a very specific term, meaning a direct creation of God. The angels were direct creations of God. Other than Adam... Other than Adam, humans are not direct creations. We are um, either Ben Adam or Bat Adam coming from Adam. Anytime the term sons of man is used, or sons of God, I'm sorry, is used in the Old Testament. It's always in reference to angels. And we see this particularly in Job. And I've got several verses here for you to see. If you want to read them here or go into your Bibles and underline them there. Job 1.6, very well-known passage. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also Came among them. Later in Job 2 1, again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. A definite reference to angels. This term is for angels. Later in the book of Job, again 38 5 through 7, and this is in Reference when God is talking about his creation. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? This shows us The angels were present at creation. They were direct creations of God, present at his creation of everything else. Very important to understand. This is what makes their apostasy so great. They really knew the truth. They were witness at the beginning of it, yet they left it, um, forsaked it. So except for Adam, in the Old Testament, men are never called direct creations of God. They are referred to as Ben-Adam, sons of Adam. So here we have the sons of God, um, meaning angels. Very important note here, and this is also incredibly cool. This term does change in the New Testament. So if you look at John 1, 2, it says, but to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be the children of God. Why is that? Because he recreates us, gives us a new heart at the time of salvation. So at that point, we can call ourselves children of God. Um, that is beautiful. But again, in this reference, that is never used of ma- man in the Old Testament. So we have the sons of God, the Bana Elohim, and the daughters of men, Adam, which simply means human female offspring. <laughs> so we're dealing with angels and we're dealing with humans. So the sons of God and daughters of men are from different created orders. Both are created beings, but not the same. So the earth was being populated. Angels found human females attractive. So much so they were willing to leave the position that God had given them Something else, and that is apostasy. They apostatized. This is why this is used as an example in the letter of Jude. This is an event of apostasy because, again, they would have had more witness to truth than anyone else. So, the progression of sin we see here in the angels is exactly the Progression we see in the original sin. So if you go all the way back to Genesis 3 6, look what happens here. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit. And here we see in Genesis 6, 2, the same thing. The sons of God saw, they thought they were attractive or good, and they took. Same exact progression here. So a couple of points of application that I think are really important at this time. Number one, at this point in Genesis, both in the original fall And at the fall of these angels, God had already decided and declared what was good. Over and over and over, he would create and declare, this is good. This is good. This is good. This is good. good." And then we even hear, this is not good in reference to man being alone. So God decided, this is good. This is not good. We can get into a, a lot of trouble if we try to decide what is good for ourselves. He's already declared it. That's not our job. We are to know what He says is good and not good and live by that, not determine it. This is what happened to both Eve at the original fall. And what we see here happening to these angels, it had already been declared. And then something else here, what we need to understand, is embedded in the very creation story. We have God's plan for procreation in his creation for everything. When he made plants, oh, we'll make them seed-bearing And they will produce after their kind. And then he made animals and told them to be fruitful and multiply. And they could reproduce after their kind. And then with Adam and Eve, they were told, be fruitful and multiply. And we can reproduce after our kind. Do you see (laughs) Why, there is such a war against this today. It is going against the creation of God. God did not give man angels as partners in which to procreate. And this is what happened, and it went against God's created order, and it produced offspring. I know that can be like, what? That can be hard to get, hard to even believe, but this is what the Word says. Now, people who argue against this, you might hear things like, well, angels can't do this. Angels can't produce. They can't reproduce. Um, It says, and there's several verses here, and I have them. Written in your notes, things like Matthew twenty two thirty, 30, Mark 12, 25. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So people will use that and say, well, this can't possibly happen here because angels don't marry. But Jude totally clears that up for us. These aren't angels in heaven. These are angels that left their Oketarian. Angels weren't supposed to do this. doesn't mean they can't, obviously. They left that position and did something else. So, back to Genesis, back to um, verses 6 through 4. So, after this, we see the phrase, the Nephilim were on the earth. Now that phrase is nephal, and it means to fall, to be cast down, to fall away. The Nephilim plural, whenever you put IM on a Hebrew word, it just makes it plural. So this means more than one. The Nephilim were in the land in those days. Now in many translations of scripture, that word Nephilim is translated into giants. And the reason for that, just to give you a quick little history here, when the Hebrew scripture was first translated into Greek, which is called the Septuagint, because when this happened, Hebrew had almost become a lost language. People were not speaking Hebrew. So believers couldn't even read The scriptures, they needed it in the language they were speaking. This was after Alexander the Great, who really um, Hellenized the world, meaning it was all about Greek culture and Greek language. So Hebrew, Old Testament got translated into Greek. This is what this is, the Septuagint. In the Septuagint, when the word Nephilim was translated the word gigas was used, G-I-G-A-S. When the Septuagint was translated into English, the word gigas was translated to giants. Can you see why that would happen? But the word gigas doesn't actually mean giant. It means fallen one, fallen one. Now, most people believe that these offspring were giants, and we see giants all throughout the Old Testament. So they most likely were giants, but that's not what that word is. It is a different word in the original language. So going a little further. So there were Nephilim on the earth then it says, when this happens, that children were born to them. So this union of the angels and the human women created offspring. Um, so again, I went through that. I realized I got off my notes a little bit, but it's all here for you. So it said, these were the men of old, the men of renown. Again, a lot of Greek that you can dig into here, but men of old, this is the gibberim, which means strong and mighty ones with long existence. They also had long lifespans here. Men of renown, this is, they had great reputations, fame and glory, and the two um, Hebrew words I have for you there, if you look into older meanings of these words, anash and shem, it means incurably, desperately wicked. So we, we see sort of what was created by this pairing of fallen angels and human women. So it says they were on the earth at those days and also afterwards, meaning before the flood and after the flood. Before the flood and after the flood. So again, we see that this is a pre-flood account, but this word is used also in Numbers. And if we go to our book here. So this account is happening in Genesis. Three books later, well after the flood in the book of Numbers, when it's talking about going into the land and capturing the land, it says this in Numbers 13, 33, And there we saw Nephilim, the sons of Anak who came from the Nephilim and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. Does that story ring bells to people? Yeah. Spies went into the land to see what was going on there. They saw giants in the land scared and it made them not do what God had told them to do. Um. Awful, but at the same time, when when we get a hold of this, they they would, these would have been scary, and we know Anak, one of the tribe of Anak, is Goliath. So these are particular tribes of giants that were on the earth. So, let's get a glimpse really quickly into the world's condition prior to the flood. We see that the wickedness of men was great on the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. Genesis 6, 6, the Lord regretted creating man and was grieved by man. We know in Genesis 6, 7, God decides to blot out man and animals and every creeping thing and birds of the sky. But Noah, Oh, what a phrase. Whenever we see that word in scripture, but we know something pivotal is about to take place. So here, here we have the Lord looking at his creation regretting because of the evil that is taking place, but Noah, we know that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He was seen differently from other men on the earth at that time. He is called righteous and blameless in his generation. That's why he was saved. And again, looking into those words a little bit gives us a lot of clarity. That word just um, simply is justified. It means to be in correct standing. Noah was in correct standing with God. He was perfect. That is whole, sound, unimpaired, innocent, healthful. In his generation, meaning, again, habitation or dwelling. So what this is actually telling us, Noah wasn't saved because he was sinless or perfect. Nobody, of course, is. He was in right standing with God and he had not been corrupted, his family was not corrupted by all this that was going on around him. This, most Bible scholars that take this literally and see this angelic view, see this as the very reason for the flood because that had happened. But Noah, as a righteous man, not corrupted by this, was picked, preserved, saved, and then he and his offspring were chosen to repopulate after the flood. And we can read all about that all throughout Genesis. So um, where is this idea of post-flood Nephilim? Again, we see it in the book of Numbers, which I just read. But typically, these after the flood are called raphaim. And raphaim simply means terrible ones, terrible ones. And these were the tribes of giants. Now, if you look at the word raphaim, that's 17 times in the Old Testament But whenever we have that word Raphaim, lots of times we're given tribal names. And if we take all of those together, we see these, whatever they are, these terrible ones are talked about multiple times in the Old Testament. We see it in Deuteronomy, Genesis, of course, Joshua, Samuel, Chronicles, Isaiah, some of the tribal names are um, the Emen, the Horem, the Zanzumin, the Anakin. Again, that's where Goliath came from. And then we have mentions of Og, king of the giants. So again, if you put all these mentions together, there there is a lot of dealings in the Old Testament about this subject. And if we miss this... I think we can miss some really important things in the word. First off, we just read in Numbers why the Israelites were scared to go into the land, scared to go take the land that God had given them. It was because it was full of Raphaim, all these giant tribes. Now, we know each tribe had been given a parcel of land, a parcel of land, They were supposed to go in, take it, secure it, and make it theirs. Some tribes were more successful than others. Some tribes had no success. They just gave up. But if we look at this map, this is interesting. If you dig into all these accounts in the Old Testament, there are three places where these tribes were not run out the Gaza Strip, the Hebron Valley, which is where we find the West Bank, and the Golan Heights. And I would say, if you watch world news, <laughs> if you pay any attention at all, these places are mentioned. That even today, even today these places are mentioned. Secondly, um this really once I understood this passage and what this was showing us it really gave me understanding in other portions of the New Testament that I really used to struggle with when God would tell his people okay go into the land you wipe out every man every woman every child sometimes even the animals Yes, in the Old Testament. And you're like, why? Well, if you look at the specific cases where God is saying this, these are the tribes of the Rephaim. They weren't innocent women and children. Um, So a a a lot of things that we can glean from from this passage. And again, we see implications even today in the map that I just showed you. So remember Jude's purpose here is to remind people of this event that they once fully knew um, and to show his severe judgment on apostasy. So, why is this important? Why is this particular story important? Why would he put it in here as a point um, to remember? Well, in several cases in the New Testament, in three of the Gospels, when Jesus' own disciples came to him and said, How are we going to know when you're returning? What's the sign of your return? And Jesus says, Don't be deceived, don't be deceived, don't be deceived. We'll read the Matthew account. Take heed that no man deceives you, but as in the days of Noah, so shall it also be at the coming of the Son of Man. So there is a connection here. Lots of connections, actually. We can't get to all of them. Lots of connections, between these days of Noah and the day right before the return of the Lord. One of those similarities is gross apostasy, a huge turning away. There are others that we'll get into another time, but at least we know that one for sure in this letter a time of great apostasy against truth. So, oh, I gotta go quick. Why isn't this taught more? I'm I'm gonna go through this super quick here. And this is gonna give you a little bit of church history, which we all should have. This is a fabulous book on church history. Much of the content that I got for Seven Letters to the Seven Churches is from this, also Haley's Bible Handbook, which I bring in. Um, This is incredible In church history. But we know in the 300s AD, if you remember, the church after the day of Pentecost, we have hundreds of years of severe persecution against the church, over 200 years of imperial persecutions by the Romans. To the church. It was supposed to kill the church, but it actually made the church explode. So by the time Constantine comes into power in 306, half of the Roman Empire was considered Christians. So the persecution did not work out so well for the Roman Empire. Now, Constantine, of course, was trying to bring his empire together, pagans and Christians. So we learned this. He did a lot of things to try to bridge these things by making Sunday the national day of worship. Well, that was because he had three sects of sun worshipers. So that's not necessarily this great thing as we hear it like, oh, wow, Sunday. Oh, yay. Um, he, he did a lot of incredible social things. He got rid of the gladiatorial fights. He, um, he gave slaves a day off for the first time ever. I mean, he did some wonderful things for the people, but they were social changes. We have to be very careful here. Social changes aren't necessarily the gospel. There's a lot of debate here of whether he was really transformed if he became a Christian because he was saying he was a Christian, that he was fighting for the cross. Now, again, I know what I believe. I cannot reconcile his life with a true Christian. At his death, though he did, again, many good things, at his death, his kingdom was divided between his three sons. His first son was killed in a battle against his second son. The second son commits suicide 10 years later. And then the third son has the empire to himself. At that time, the Roman empire was taken from the third son by his cousin, Julian. Now, Julian... Was this, I know this is a lot. Julian was Constantine's brother's son. So it was his nephew, the cousin of the current um, emperor. Julian takes the country or the empire from his cousin. He publicly declares he's leaving Christianity. For paganism. And then he fights. He was not in power for very long, but he fought ferociously against Christians. Now, one of the reasons why might be Constantine, his uncle, killed his father and many other family members to make sure his sons would get the empire. Do you see my difficulty here in... Now, I don't know Constantine, of course. I don't know his heart, so I can't say for sure, but I can judge what he did. I can judge his actions. So I, I don't believe he was a transformed man. So look at damage here. <laughs> Here's a man claiming to be something, and he's not. And then his own nephew gets the nickname Julian the Apostate. And again, his time in power, a ferocious battle against the church, and one of the things he really found distasteful was the angelic view of Genesis 6, and he used it against the church. Say, no way can you believe that. That, that is ridiculous. Um, just questioned it, questioned it, questioned it, and then kind of the nail in the coffin on these teachings because the an angel theory was the believed um, interpretation of this passage for centuries. And then Augustine, everybody heard of Augustine? A very influential person in the church thought that the angelic view was distasteful. So he sided with a new story that was given that the sons of men meant um, sons of Seth, and the daughters of men were um, women in Cain's line. So this Seth line and a line of Cain intermarrying, and this became known as the Sethite view. And once Augustine said, this is the view we're taking, then that became what was predominantly taught um, in seminaries thereafter and still today. The Sethite view is taught in many seminaries. So I'm going to leave that up to you. Whether you want to look into that view or this view, only one can be correct. Now, in your notes, and I don't have time to go over this, but I've got a list of reasons why there's quite a few holes in the Sethite theory. First is the text itself. This inferred separation, it, it was never said in the Bible that descendants from Cain and Seth couldn't intermarry, never. There was no, um, nothing said about intermarriage between any tribes until, or people groups until well after the flood. There's also an inferred righteousness of Seth's line, which there wasn't. I mean, his own son did things that you can read about in the Bible. So a lot of things that I believe make that theory not very strong. But again, those are in your notes and you can go over them yourself. So I need to pray and then we can get out. But if you have questions, of course, I'm happy to stay and answer questions um, if you have any. Father God, again, we thank you for this day. Lord, we just lift up this letter to you, this passage to you that you gave to us. And God, we ask for your understanding. Lord, we ask for discernment. We want to be women who rightly divide the word of God. Meaning we read it, we study it, we understand it. Because, Lord, we want to be people who articulate the truth of your word to others. God, if there's any areas in which we're missing it, including myself, Lord, reveal it to us. We want to be teachable. We in no way claim to be people who understand it all, who have it all, but we are trying. So we ask for your help in this, Lord particularly in tough passages that are controversial and people see them in different ways. God, just go before us in this letter and make our path straight. We thank you and we praise you for this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.